you join me in prayer. Father, we do gather to celebrate the triumph, the victory of Easter, to celebrate the reality that the tomb is empty. But even as we gather, we come from different places, we're at different points in life, different seasons, and some of us can truly resonate with the words of that song that speak of being in the deep waters, that speak, speak of being in the fire. So, Father, wherever we're at in life right now, whatever we're facing, whatever has brought us to this moment, I pray that we truly be open to the message of Easter and the truth that Jesus is risen. And I pray these things in his name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, again, good morning, and thank you for joining us on Easter. My name is George Davis. Glad to welcome you. Some of you are new to our church. Maybe you're here with friends and family. We just hope you feel welcome. As Dave mentioned, we'd love for you to pick up a gift bag on your way out. It's just our way of thanking you for joining us. And as we continue this morning, I want want to continue by asking you this question. How well do you deal with change? How well do you deal with change? Now, my guess is for some of us, our immediate response is, I don't, I don't like change, right? I don't, I don't do well with change. For a variety of rain, uh, reasons, change can be hard. I get that. And, and I think some of us have experienced that. Perhaps you've known it in your past. Some of you are going through change right now, and, and change can be hard. For instance, perhaps some of you, you're, gonna be, you're in your education, you're going to be you're moving to a new school next year, middle school or high school, university, or a new program, and that's going to involve change. Some of you have gone through job changes, career changes. Maybe you're looking for that next piece and just going through the process of looking, it's, it's hard. Change is hard. Perhaps you are new to our area and you're still wondering, why can there not be one straight road in all of central Pennsylvania, right? I mean, it's so hard. Yeah, I get it. I just thank God for GPS technology. That's all I can say. Change can be hard. And and here's the reason you're like, okay, I get that. Change can be hard. But why are you bringing that up on Easter? Here's the reason I'm asking you that question. I'm asking you that question because whether you have thought of it in these terms or not, Easter is a message. It's a story all about change. Now, I realize most of us, if not all of us, are familiar with the story, right? You you know what we're going to talk about this morning. And and unfortunately, sometimes our familiarity, sometimes the reality that we gather year after year to remember this day, sometimes our familiarity covers over our awareness that woven into the very depths of this story is a message of change. And not only that, it's a message of change that involves me, and it involves you. And to show you what I mean, we're now going to come to Mark chapter 16. Throughout the course of this year, our church, together, we've been going through Mark's gospel, kind of understanding how Mark recounts the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And this morning, we come to Mark chapter 16. And as we come to this passage, let me, let me just show you several different ways that change is woven into the story of Easter. And let me just show you what that has to do with you and what it has to do with me. As we come to this text, I want you to notice, first of all, that woven into the story 
of Easter is the change that comes with a new reality. To show you what I mean, listen again to the words of Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 6. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and, and they asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw this Right, this angel, this young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side and they were, they were alarmed. In fact, it says they were terrified. Don't be alarmed, he said. You were looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, right? This is where, this was the bench in that tomb that he would have been laid in preparation for final burial and you've come to anoint him with spices, but see, he's gone. He's arisen. And this, this scene confronts us with this simple truth. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And understand as this, as this account is, is told to us, this isn't just some kind of power ploy. It's not the random manifestation of power, not some sleight of hand. This is actually part of a new reality. This is the start of something new. In the pages of scripture, we we come to understand this is the beginning of a new creation. Now, as I think, as we all know, that the world of which we are part, the the old creation is, is a world marred by sin and brokenness and separation in relationships, not only in our relationship with God and our relationships with one another. And whether you're a follower of Christ or not, I think intuitively you recognize this. You recognize the brokenness at times we see in ourselves, the brokenness we see in others, and we see it in our schools and our workplaces. We see it in culture. From time to time, we just have to acknowledge things are not as they should be, even to get up on an Easter morning and to learn about attacks in Sri Lanka that killed dozens of people. But Jesus comes on a rescue mission. We've been seeing that as we've worked our way through Mark's gospel. He describes this rescue mission as the the kingdom of God, a new reality, a restorative work is now underway that he is making possible. And through his death, he will take on the weight and the punishment of our brokenness and sin. And then he was raised in power and triumph. And, And One day he will return to bring this new reality in its final and ultimate form. But until then, the work of transformation is already underway. In fact, the early Christian leader, Paul, would say this. He says, wherever you see someone who has started that journey of following Christ, wherever you see someone who has put their faith and trust in Christ, their new creation is already at work. And if you're a follower of Christ, you're part of this new reality that comes with Easter morning. Now, I realize for some of us here, your thought is, wait a minute. I know the Easter story. I've been in church on Easter before, but I, I, I I don't really grab hold of this. Because, you know, come on, let's be honest. People don't rise from the dead, right? And maybe your first thought is 
is, is one of skepticism. I mean, this is an ancient story. People were simpler back then. They were more open to kind of stories about the supernatural. But, but we've grown up. We live in a more technologically driven age. and We've got a deeper understanding of how the world works. And if that's where you're at, first of all, just, just know I'm glad you're here. It's great to have you here. And, and also know that there are just a couple of things I'd like you to think about. If, if your response to this message is skepticism, and I get it. I mean, I get where you're coming from. But if that's your response, let me just give you a couple of things to think about. First of all, if you're really skeptical about this, can I just congratulate you? You're in good company. Because in one sense, the original disciples were actually more skeptical than you are. And here's why, I, here's why I say that. On multiple occasions, and we read this in Mark's gospel, on multiple occasions, Jesus had this conversation with his disciples before, before he was arrested. He said, look, I'm, I'm going to be arrested. I'm going to be executed. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. At least three times in Mark's gospel, Jesus looks them in the eye and says this, I will be crucified, I will die, but then I will be raised from the dead. The, the death is not the end. I mean, they had that conversation face to face. Now this happens and none of them believe him. From all the gospel accounts from early church historians, there is not one sliver of evidence that any of those disciples ventured down to the tomb. There wasn't even a a little bit of just skeptical curiosity. There wasn't even just one of them that said, hey guys, don't you remember what Jesus said? You know, he talked about rising from the dead. Of course, we know nobody rises from the dead, but just out of curiosity, I think I'm going to take a stroll and just see what's going on down by the tomb. None of them thought in those terms. Why? Because they were scared. This was over. There was now the fear of persecution and further Roman intervention. None of them believed him. The only people that go to the tomb are these women, and they're not looking for a resurrected savior. They are looking for a body to anoint because dead people stay dead. So if you're skeptical, let me just tell you, don't be surprised, but you're really in good company. But furthermore, as as you see this scene unfold, pay particular attention to the fact that we see women as witnesses to the empty tomb. Now, here's why this is important. I don't like to kind of acknowledge this, but this is just a historical fact. In in the first century, in multiple cultures, the testimony of women was not necessarily taken seriously. It just wasn't. In fact, one of the earliest critics, perhaps the first critic of Christianity in writing, is a Roman writer, philosopher by the name of Celsus. And part of his criticism of Christianity is this, that resurrection story, you can't believe that because, look, it's, it's based on the testimony of women. That was part of his argument. And so here's the deal. If you were just going to make this story up out of thin air, If you were going to just make it up, the last thing you would do in the first century is put women at the scene of the empty tomb. The only reason you would do that 
is if that, in fact, was the way it actually happened. So if you're kind of really skeptical about that, there are just a couple of things to think about. And if if you'd be open to exploring this further, I'll just mention a book a a good friend of mine has just released a few months ago that I think is really helpful. Uh, His name is Peter Williams, and he's just released this book, Can We Trust the Gospels? And it really helps us wrestle with some of the questions that we can have about the Gospels, and, and can we trust them? So as we come to this Easter story, we see that woven into the very fabric of the story is this radical change that through the resurrection of Christ, there's this new reality now at work and and we become a part of it when we put our faith and trust in Christ. And as the story continues, I also want you to see this, that with this new reality also comes a new identity. Notice the next verse Verse 7, right? The, the women, they come to the tomb, they encounter this guy, this angel, and tells them Jesus is gone. And then he gives, them, he gives them these instructions. He says, you need to go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. Now, as you look, look at this, as you look at this statement, I want you to pay attention to a little phrase. It, it may seem like a throwaway phrase, an incidental detail, but, but ta- pay attention to this, this line. Tell his disciples and Peter. Can I suggest to you those two little words, and Peter, are two of the most powerful words in the pages of the Bible. And here's why. Think about Peter for a moment, right? We've already encountered him in different ways in Mark's gospel. You remember Peter? He's that brash guy, that action-oriented guy, that outspoken guy. And as Mark retells the story of Jesus, right, it's Peter who right at crunch time tells Jesus, look, other people may fall away. Other people may not stand by you, but I'm going to be the one. I'm going to be by you to the very end, right? And this bravado and, and all of this assurance, he tells Jesus, I'm going to stick with you. But then, of course, when the pressure finally reaches its crescendo, Peter two caves, right? I mean, it's major league failure. He denies Jesus just like everybody else. Now, as you think about that, let me ask you this question. Have you been in a similar situation Have you ever been in a situation where you have failed on a promise? Have you ever been in a situation where you have hurt someone deeply? Have you been in a situation where you kind of failed to live up to what you knew you needed to do? Some of us, we've done this in our marriages, if you're married. You know that, 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 that moment of really letting someone else down, of, of, of doing something that ultimately hurt someone else. And if you have wrestled with that moment, if you've taken it seriously, undoubtedly there comes a point where you do feel a certain weight of, of shame, of disappointment and frustration with yourself, of embarrassment. And isn't it the case that if you've been in that situation, the last person 
you want to see, the last person you really want to talk to, the last person you want to have a conversation with is the person that you've hurt. Have you been there? Do you know that? Uh, some of you, you know, those, those really hard conversations after you've hurt someone. So as you think about that, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a moment. Imagine the women bringing this message to the disciples. Guys, you're not going to believe this. We, we can't, we, we're still, we're not, we, we still can't fully understand it ourselves, but, but he's alive. And we are to d- deliver this message to you that he's, he's done just what he said. He's, he's, he's waiting for you. He's going to meet you in Galilee just like he said. And can't you just see here the disciples and can't you just see Peter at that moment, right? It's, there's a bit of excitement around the group, but he just drops his head. Because that, that just, it just brings back the failure and the frustration. And I can, I can just see Peter, right, just looking around at the other guys. Hey, guys, you go ahead. This is great, but you, got, you guys go ahead. I don't, I, I can't have that conversation. I'm done. I'm out. I blew it. And that, that's when the women say, no, 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 no. No, Peter, you don't get it. He, the message says he's specifically waiting for you. Peter, he wants to see you. He's waiting for you. I I, I know you failed and you really blew it big time, but Peter, he's waiting for you in Galilee. Can Can you start to see how powerful those words really are? Because what we're experiencing in these simple words is the beginning of Peter's restoration. Peter, in light of this new reality that has been brought about by Christ's work, in light of the fact that he has risen from the dead, you're not simply defined by your failures or your achievements or your successes. You're not simply defined by how you blew it a couple of days ago. No, Peter, you're now in relationship with him. And Peter, he's waiting for you in Galilee. So stop sulking and get moving. Take that next step. You've got a new identity. You are now defined by your relationship with Jesus. Now, here's one more amazing thing about these words that we find recorded in Mark's gospel. Richard Bauckham, a very uh, recognized New Testament scholar internationally, and, and one of the things he's written is this very influential book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And what is powerful about this book is as Bauckham looks carefully at the gospels, he argues that in reading the Gospels, the evidence is clear that we're dealing with eyewitness testimony. Furthermore, Bauckham, among many scholars, is one who would argue that Peter was the major source for Mark's Gospel. Now, when you put that fact together with the reality that Peter was a very powerful and influential leader in the early Christian movement, I think you have to come to this conclusion. Mark would have only given us details about Peter's failure if he had Peter's permission to do so. Now, just let that sink in for a moment. Imagine having such a sense of freedom, such a sense of restoration, such a sense of a new identity 
that you are willing for your most frustrating, disappointing, embarrassing moment to be broadcast widely. Do you have that sense of freedom? Do you have an unshakable identity that can't be undermined by failure, by setbacks or challenges? I mean, this is, this is what Peter is coming to grips with, right? I mean, he's, in light of what Christ has done, in light of this new reality, he now has a new identity. So get moving, Peter. He's waiting for you. You know, as a follower of Jesus, here are some of the ways my identity is described in the pages of Scripture. I'm adopted into his family. I have a living hope. I'm under no condemnation. I'm a new creation. I'm forgiven. I'm now alive to God. I'm a recipient of God's grace, and I'm to be an agent of that grace in the lives of others. So once again, here's here's the change that is coming with this resurrection. This resurrection introduces a new reality. And when you become a follower of Christ, within that new reality, you now have a new identity. And finally, there's just one other thing I want you to notice, one other dimension of change that is at work in this passage, and that is this. With this new reality also comes a new invitation. Look at verse 8. Right? So the women go to the tomb. They are given these instructions to go and tell the disciples. And then we read this. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, here's where this text gets complicated. Here's where it gets interesting. (laughs) If if you're reading from a copy of the Bible, modern English translation... Most likely there will be a note here that says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and some ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20, right? There's a longer ending here, but typically an English translation is going to tell you that that longer ending is not included in the best manuscripts. Now, uh, you know, I'd be glad to have this conversation with you, but I'm not going to go into a lot of detail, but here's the bottom line. The bottom line is this. The oldest and most reliable copies of Mark's gospel end with verse 8. The oldest and most reliable copies of Mark's gospel do not include verses 9 through 20. And the evidence suggests that at some point in the second century AD, a longer ending was added to Mark's gospel that was done by scribes and copyists. And arguably, part of, part of the reason a longer ending was added was this. Verse 8 seems to be a very disappointing way to end the book. Right? I mean, we get this great announcement. Hey, the tomb is empty, and Jesus is waiting for you in Galilee. And then we're told, but the women were afraid, and, and it stops. The book just stops. I mean, it's funny, even in Greek, it ends with a preposition. Who ends a book with a preposition? I always told my professors I could do it if Mark did it. That argument never won the day, but. <laughs> I mean, what happened? I mean, did he just get to the bottom of the page? He's out of room and okay, I'm good. I'm done, right? Why would you end a book this way? Well, can I suggest that? I really do think this was done intentionally. 
And let me tell you why. First of all, I think Mark ends this way, right? I mean, it's like we end right next to this tomb. We know the tomb is empty. We know Jesus is in Galilee waiting. But we end, and all we're doing, we're just standing next to the women, and they're gripped by fear. And I think part of the reason Mark ends the gospel this way is he, he wants us to stand here for a moment. He wants us to wrestle with the fear that these women were experiencing. And if you've gone through this study of Mark's gospel over the last few weeks with us, if you've been reading through the book, at times you've noticed fear can be a major theme for Mark. He brings up the issue of fear in different places. And he does it, I think, among other things, for this reason. He talks about fear because he wants us to understand this. Look, just because you become a follower of Christ doesn't mean the obstacles and the anxieties and the uncertainties magically disappear. They won't. In fact, as you're on this journey of following Jesus, there are going to be moments in in which the very fact that you are trying to follow Jesus and be obedient and to walk this path with him, that very fact is going to bring certain fears and uncertainties to the surface. I think he wants us to be aware of that. Look, this this is what the journey of Christ is going to look like. So stand for a moment with these women as they deal with fear. But here's the deal. Even though the book stops there, we know the story doesn't. We know that they simply weren't immobilized by their fear permanently. And the reason we know that is we've got this book, right? The story continued. The, the message continued. In fact, part of the reason, whether you realize it or not, that you are sitting here this morning is the fact that these women ultimately were not overwhelmed by their fear. So I think part of the reason Mark stops the way he does is because he wants us to wrestle with the reality that fear is going to be a part of this journey. So don't be surprised by that, but continue taking steps of faith. But I think there's another reason why Mark stops here, and that is this. Notice the story ends with this. The story ends with this, this expectation. Hey, you got to get moving. Jesus is waiting for you in Galilee. And that's how the story ends. And I think Mark ends it that way for another reason, and that is this. He wants to invite us into the story. Right? He, he wants us to now become a part of this ongoing story. Remember, he started his gospel by saying, this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. And with those words, I think what he ultimately meant was, this is only the beginning. The story continues. Maybe I can illustrate it this way. Some of you, uh, some of you are parents. Some of you are, even if you're not parents, maybe you've been around small kids at times. Ever had this experience? It's kind of a crisp spring day, kind of like we've had recently, and you're, you're out with kids, your kids, at a park, and, and they're out playing, and, and they, they start to warm up a bit, and a jacket comes off, and one of them goes back to you, hey, mom, hey, dad, hold the jacket. So there you are holding the jacket. And maybe they brought some other stuff with them. You know, a lot of times kids 
travel with their stuff, whatever that is. And, and over time, they get tired of playing with their stuff. Hey, dad, would you hold this? Got to hold my superhero. Hey, mom, would you hold this? Would you hold? And, and by, the, by the end of your time at the park, you're just kind of left holding stuff. You ever had that experience as parents? You just hold, you know, what do I do with it? Well, that's part of being a parent, right? Just hold their stuff. In a similar way, Mark tells the story of Jesus, right? That's what we've been looking at over the last few weeks. And he kind of comes and he says, he said, hold this. I want, I want to tell you the story of Jesus. And as we've gone through the pages of this book, we were confronted with the reality of who Jesus is and what that entails. Not only are we confronted with the reality of who Jesus is, we're also confronted with the nature of what it means to follow. Here's what it looks like to follow Jesus. The story continues, and we follow Jesus to Jerusalem. In fact, Mark slows down as he tells that part of the story because it's building to the work of the cross. And then we see Jesus crucified brutally. But the story continues because then we get to chapter 16, and right, he's... He's alive, he's been raised from the dead. And then, and we, we see the empty tomb and we hear the reality that, you know, he's ahead of us, he's in, he's in Galilee. And, and, and we wait for the very end to, for him to wrap this package up and put a bow on top and say, and they lived happily ever after. But none of that comes. In fact, it's at that very moment that it's almost like Mark just walks away from us and the book stops. And this is the point you kind of look over your shoulder as the reader and say, hey, Mark, whoa, Mark, Mark. What am I going to do with this now? You left me with it. And this is the point at which Mark smiles and said, I'm glad you asked. This is the question I've been building up to throughout the entire book. What will you do with Jesus? And that's how the book ends. And in a similar way, I, I want to just kind of ask you to engage that question this morning. What will you do with Jesus? Perhaps you're here and, and you're a follower of Christ. There's some of us that we've been We've been followers of Christ for multiple decades. And this morning, I hope that in hearing the change that comes with Easter, hearing the ongoing invitation of the fact that Jesus is waiting for you, I pray that in hearing that message, you would just be reminded again, you know what, this is an ongoing story. Sometimes as followers of Christ, we get, we get comfortable. We like the status quo, and yet... Even though we know change can be hard, the, the journey of following Christ, is, it's a journey of change. It's an ongoing journey of, of Christ being at work in us and Christ being at work through us, and we need to be open to that. And so if you're a follower of Christ, let this Easter message be an encouragement to you. Even if you felt stuck recently, to keep taking steps of faith. 
be willing to explore what that looks like. For instance, for some of you, maybe those next steps include steps of learning what it means for you to be involved in encouraging and serving in the lives of other people. In fact, over the next couple of weeks, in our next series, that's what we're going to be talking about. But would you hear Jesus' invitation? Keep taking steps. Keep walking. Because he's waiting for you in Galilee. Maybe you're here and, and you have yet to start the journey of following Jesus. You understand the story and, you know, I kind of get it. I know all the stories, but this is yet to be your experience as well. The Bible says that we begin this journey of following Jesus through repentance and faith. That is by acknowledging our sin and our brokenness and, and receiving through faith this gift of new life and forgiveness that he offers And as we do that, we become part of this new reality. We become recipients of this new identity. And once again, I realize change is hard. Maybe you would even say, I don't don't really feel like I'm the religious type or I'm not that kind of person. But I pray that you would hear this morning that this invitation is to you as well. Because Jesus, he's waiting for you in Galilee. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come to this Easter story, I pray we would hear clearly the invitation. I pray that we would hear, hear clearly that we are invited to the story. Father, some of us are followers of Christ, and I pray that this morning we would be challenged and encouraged to keep taking steps forward. Perhaps recently there have been some things that have generated a great deal of fear, fear that can even immobilize us, but may with those women we keep taking steps because Jesus is waiting, and he can be trusted because he's been raised from the dead. Father, I also pray for those who have yet to start this journey. Father, I pray that even now, in the quietness of this moment, they would be willing just to come to you and recognize this invitation is to them as well. I pray they'd be willing just to say, okay, God, I I realize that I'm broken, that I'm imperfect, and that life isn't a do-it-yourself project. There are things in my life, I, I can't do this on my own. I pray that they would understand their need for you, but they would also understand the reality of the gift that comes with Easter, of new life and forgiveness. Father, I pray even now they would just, even in this moment, be willing to put their faith and their trust in you by receiving your gift of new life. Father, may they they be convicted by the truth that this invitation applies to them, and Jesus is waiting. Amen.